Thank you for joining us for another episode of Overthinking Movies. I'm your overthinking host, Brandon Hain, and we're here. We've made it. We're at one of the most beloved and ambitious films in the entire Godzilla franchise. It's Destroy All Monsters. And obviously, of course, I have co-host, overthinking co-host, Alex Yulaki with me to cover this pretty huge and frankly in some ways complicated film to talk about, not just because of the amount of monsters in this film, which totals 11, but the also pretty intricate human story we've got going on in this movie. Not to say that it's incredibly emotional or character development focused, but it's a intergalactic conspiracy, (laughs) which has a lot of layers to it. Human and alien story. Yes, which is interesting. So I almost find this film to be almost like a remake of Invasion of Astro Monster with how similar a lot of its plot beats is. Obviously, though, this is a much, much better film. So, yeah, yeah. in terms of general thoughts, uh, just to get those out of the way before we start covering this one, because we we need to get into this because there's a lot lot to uh, cover here. So, Destroy All Monsters. When the action is happening... It's wonderful. It's like the monsters, there seems to be a conceited effort to make them all look equally great in this film. Like their suits clearly had an overhaul and they all, even our old buddy Rodan, looks wonderful in this movie. They did a great job trying to, you know, make them all Well, work. I don't know if I'd say Rodan looks wonderful. He looks <laughs> much improved is what looks I would much say. Improved. By the standards of what we've seen in the past, I sure. guess is what I should preface. But the problem is, is that unfortunately a good portion of this film is devoted to the human story. The movie tries. Like, the opening of the film immediately starts with the monsters. We get a little bit of monster stuff kind of in the middle, dotted here and there. And then, obviously, there's a big monster climax battle at the end. But for me and Alex and my other co-host, Zach, that was watching it along with us, we found that overall there just wasn't enough monster action. We wanted more. If they're going to put 11 monsters in this movie, Movie, give them all more screen time. Instead, so much of the screen time is instead devoted to the human story that frankly just isn't as engaging as in previous films. And when the monster stuff is happening, many times the monsters of the extended cast anyway are only given one moment or two possibly to have something to do in the fights before mainly the focus is on uh, Godzilla and Mothra and Rodan, and maybe like a little bit of Anchorage sprinkled in there. So, yeah, I if I were to make a tier list, and like we're going to obviously grade all these movies once we get through this whole era of the original 60s and 70s uh, Godzilla films, but I would honestly put Godzilla Destroy All Monsters below. I would put it below Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. I'd put it below King Kong versus Godzilla. I'd put it below Mothra versus Godzilla. Like, yes, like the human stories in many of those other movies are much more ridiculous than the Surreal Monsters, but they're also far more entertaining. The entertainment value overall as a movie is above. While the monster action in Surreal Monsters, you know, no, make no mistake, there's so much happening in it when the monsters are on screen, and it's some of the best the franchise has ever had. But if we're grading this as an overall production, scene by scene through a movie, and entertainment value through all its 90 minutes, there's been better in this franchise. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, this is one of the ones I had been more familiar with as a child. I saw this one on TV a lot, and they talked about this one a lot just because of the sheer number of monsters into it, but I had warned you going into this, though this is 
one of their more notable stops. I'm not, I don't want you to be overhyped for this, Brandon, because basically what you just said there is just not enough monster action despite one of the largest amounts of monsters in this film. So, The Shrill Monsters by far is the movie that's not just had an effect on this franchise going forward, but also the other Godzilla franchises like the American franchise we covered uh, back the whole way in 2021. In Son of Godzilla, Godzilla's son was born on this island that Godzilla and his son eventually decided to live on. And back then, there wasn't really a full name for it. I think it had like a different name, but over the course of the movies, they eventually settle on the name Monster Land or Monster Island. Yeah, they. I did see that in the subtitles in Son of Godzilla at the end or the, somewhere in there. They do say Monster Land. And this movie opens on Monster Land, this island off the coast of Japan that has all these monsters living on it. You know, we got Godzilla, we got Godzilla's son, we got Mothra, we got Anchorus, who we haven't seen since Godzilla raids again. And we got, oh, of course, Rodan. Rodan's flying around doing this thing, not moving at all. And he's moving a little bit this time. <laughs> like like you said, they did upgrade him, so now he has at least, like, a moving part or two. Right, at the very least. And all the monsters are living peacefully together on this island. Like, Godzilla took in all these roommates, and they all actually seem to be okay with each other, which is surprising to me. Because the human plot going on here is that the monsters are living on this island for a reason, because the humans are literally keeping them in. They're using all kinds of different technology as a way of controlling them and keeping them to the island, so that way they can use the island as a way to research all of them through a research facility they have uh, underground. So I'm wondering why the monsters aren't all just fighting each other at this point. It's not like they're in, under any sort of control besides the control keeping them on the island. But I guess maybe they did start fighting at some point and now they're just kind of okay with each other and living to learn, <laughs> living to learn and be friends together despite everything else. Sure. But then suddenly, Alex, the system they use to control the monsters malfunctions. There's like a power outage and everything goes offline and there's like an earthquake, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And then, as you might expect, the monsters have left Monster Land, and they're somewhere, but they don't know where yet. So there's two major locations that are kind of focused on in this movie. There's the underground base they're using to control the monsters, right. and also a moon base. There's now people building civilizations on the moon. So this film came out in 1968, uh, but the opening of the film implies that the f story is set in like 1999 or at least near the end of the 20th century. Yeah, I think I think I read that the dub specifies that it's 99. I don't think it specified in the original Japanese, yeah. Yes, and we watched the original Japanese version here which just says towards the end of the 20th century. So anyway, apparently towards the end of the 20th century, I didn't know about this personally, Alex, but apparently we already have moon bases. Which is pretty cool, but <laughs> may maybe the Japanese are hiding that from us. I don't know. So they have a moon base, and mainly they're just using it to, of course, you know, examine space and ex examine the surface of the moon. But at this point, obviously, the story is that they're trying to figure out, okay, so what's causing the monsters to freak out? Like, who would sabotage the systems keeping the monsters on monster land? But then suddenly the monsters reappear, and they're all over the world. 
Godzilla's like attacking New York. New York, yeah. First time stomping around New York City. It will not be the last, of course. He'll, he'll be stomping there again in the Roland Emmerich film Godzilla from 1998, for better or worse. And obviously, Alex, I don't remember every single location they're all dotted at, but there's some pretty great sequences. Yeah, it's, it's the major cities of the world. We got, I know they mentioned Moscow, Beijing, Paris, New York. You know, all the uh, obvious places to attack, pretty much. And we get some wonderful little miniatures destroying everything else. Yeah, even the miniatures themselves look a lot better in this particular film. They're still obviously miniatures, but they're detailed, and the destruction is satisfying because of that. Right. We also have some new monsters here, or at least monsters new to Alex and I, as they're not just taking from the monsters that Godzilla has fought in the past, they're taking from monsters that have had their own solo movies, also produced under Toho. Some of those include Amanda, and Amanda might be my favorite, one of my favorite monsters to come out of this movie. He's like a Chinese dragon sea serpent. Yeah, sea dragon, sort of, that big snake-looking thing with these little legs and very cool puppet with mouth full of teeth. Yeah, he's not a guy in a suit, he's like a puppet, he's this super long, elongated dragon that can wrap himself around things, and it leads to this this beautiful shot, that, which might be one of the best shots in the movie, where it's Godzilla deep in the background, blowing up buildings, and Manda in, in the foreground wrapping his body around a bridge to constrict it until it uh, breaks apart. Yeah, that was Yeah, wonderful. that was well done. Yeah, then um, others that haven't appeared beside Godzilla before would Gorosaurus, who had actually appeared in the other Toho King Kong film, King Kong Escapes, which is just a, a giant... Pretty much a regular dinosaur, just like three fingers on short hands and the basic shape that they assumed that they had in this generation where it was just this big standing lumbering beast with uh, no special powers, really. And then the other one of note is Varan, who, I mean, he's not really of note in this film as like almost could like watch the whole film and not realize he's in it. But he's just big flying thing that had also appeared in a, his own solo film before this, actually. I think they scaled him down a little bit more for this one. And he just kind of flies around like a big scaly flying squirrel in the background a little bit. Yeah, he has a neat design, but ultimately he's more just a background element. Which, once again, if they had given the monsters more time, there could have been a lot more they could have done with these other monsters. But anyway, sure, so... I, I mean, it would have been interesting to see some of these characters do more, too, especially, you know, in their first Godzilla film. At least they did... They, I, I do admit, they did make decent use of Manda. Not that Manda has that much time, but they utilize Manda well. Yes, Manda gets his moments throughout, dotted throughout the film. More in the destruction than the ultimate ending monster battles, but... Uh, enough where they utilize what makes him unique. So the astronauts that are on the moon base come to investigate the underground base because there's suddenly been a lot a loss of communication there after the monsters evacuated the island and started destroying different capitals across the world. When they arrive back at the underground base, the monster control center, they find it almost completely uninhabited besides... Two people, and one of them, I believe, is like the girlfriend of one of the astronauts, and another one is like a scientist, and both of them are completely calm. They don't seem to be bothered by anything going on, and when they try to speak to them, they seem happy that the monsters are attacking. They're saying that everything's going according to plan and everything's great, 
and they're wondering what's going on because it's they, they don't know why these people would be behind any sort of conspiracy but so they take both of them well at least they try to they take the scientist and try to you know take him somewhere so they can interrogate him but when they try to get the girl a uh, smoke fills the entire laboratory and she disappears into it and disappears so they take the scientist somewhere to interrogate him and he's just not saying anything he's just sitting in a chair being completely dead silent do you know what's going on why is this happening who is truly doing this Meanwhile, we get a shot outside of the building that they're interrogating him in of like a high heel stepping in sand, implying that somebody is uh, watching over them. So they continue interrogating him and being like, okay, so what's going on? Why are the monsters doing this? Do you know anything? He's just not giving them any information. It it, it appears that a lot of time has passed by this point, too. I was under the impression of that he's just sitting there stone cold. He then just stands up and they're like, wait, what are you doing? The scientist walks over to the window and opens the window. And uh, jumps out of it to his death. And they're just like, what? And they run over and look, and yeah, he's laying on the beach with blood coming out of his body. Which, this one does seem to have a little bit more blood in it than a lot of the previous ones we've seen before this. It's not the first time we've seen blood, but it's the first time in a while in one of these Godzilla films. Which is interesting, Alex, because this is past the point where the Godzilla films started being pitched more towards a child audience, to the point where an elementary school was actually taken to the set of Destroy All Monsters to see the effects and also, like, get a nice shot with all of the people in their monster suits. So you'd think that this would cut back more on the violence than previous entries, but no, in fact, it's far more violent, which, truthfully, is also kind of what makes the action more satisfying. Right, it does ground it a little bit more with... Some of this stuff. So they investigate the dead body of the scientist on the beach trying to figure out what's going on with him. When suddenly the girl, the girlfriend who disappeared earlier, reappears because she was the, the high heel watching them on the beach. And she appears with a group of other guys that were originally at the monster control center. Which, once again, they're all very calm and seem cool and collected. And it's... It's mind control of a sense, but it's interesting. They're not robotic. They still show emotion, but they're clearly being influenced somewhere. The guys that were the interrogators try to talk their way out of this, but they're attacked, and the girl tries to escape as it turns out... Yeah, there's this scuffle on the beach, which I just noted that I kind of liked that they end up starting shooting phasers at them while the people are shooting guns at them, which makes for just an interesting little battleground shot. Yes, yeah, they're ambushed by a group of other humans being controlled on the beach with phasers shooting back and forth at them. At one point, one of the controlled people runs over to the dead body of the scientist and takes a knife towards his neck, and you're just like, well, he's already dead. Why would he even be doing that? But they're able to get that guy away before he does that, and they're actually able to gain control and win the battle and chase the, the people that are controlled away. And they take his body away and they take it to, a, it's either a morgue or it's some sort of hospital where they do a surgery to figure out, okay, so what, what was going on with him? Is there something we can find in him that can explain his actions? And there's an incision in like the back of his head near his neck that they open up and find a tiny little orbin. One of their scientists is able to examine the orb and finds that it's a radio transceiver. And the source of this, it turns out, is in fact aliens. So remember how I said earlier that it's kind of a remake of Invasion of Astro Monster? So once again, aliens are the focus, but unlike 
big goofy spacesuits with goggles. The aliens here are like women that wear these cloaked shimmering outfits, which I mean it's n- not exactly <laughs> it's not like it isn't also silly, but it's at least something a little more interesting than the big goggled people from Astro Right, Monster. it works a little bit better, I would say. I mean, again, it doesn't really work by today's standards at all, but as far as those kind of things we did see a lot of in the 60s and 50s with the, the shiny suited alien people, yeah, it works a little bit better. I especially like their performances, Alex, because the people in the old movie were in Astro Monster were... Very silly. They talked in, like, monotone, like aliens, and... Well, the women here, they always smile. And they're always talking very calmly. And... Because you see, it feels like at first that they are going to have, like, a peaceful negotiation to figure out this situation. But really, no. It's a blackmail situation. They essentially want us to negotiate peaceful control that they can have over us in exchange for the monsters not destroying all of us. So really, the title is a little misleading. It's called Destroy All Monsters, but really, there's no incentive. Like, the monsters aren't really fighting each other, and there's no incentive to destroy all of them besides that, you know, to stop them from destroying all of us. Right. It could have been titled All Monsters Destroy, because that's what they were afraid of having happen to the world. Which is funny, because the film that comes right after this is called All Monsters attack and that's actually a much better title for this movie which which then in turn is a terrible title for all monsters attack because that movie has nothing to do with anything (laughs) but we'll get to that so the woman that was controlled the girlfriend that disappeared once again after the shootout appears once again in the center of it's like the main base where like the un or whoever is all like talking about how to deal with with this whole situation with the aliens. She just shows up, and they're, of course, a little hostile towards her at first, but she's like, please just listen to me and let let me tell you what I have to say. And it's it's basically the same stuff, and she's just saying, oh yeah, so the aliens, the aliens are called the Kill Axe. They don't pronounce it that way in Japanese, but just pronouncing it in English, it's it's Kill Axe, which, I mean, seems, seems a little on the nose, I don't know. And they place their origin between Mars and Jupiter, which would put it, on one of countless asteroids within the asteroid belt we do have in that actual geographic region of space. And they're also another alien civilization that seems to also have inhabited Earth for quite some time before the start of this film. Because we'll see that they have bases set up everywhere. Right, they do have a lot of bases. So she tries to explain that what the Killax want is us to negotiate peaceful negotiations with them and they'll have the monsters stop killing all of us and of course the astronauts and the scientists are just like that's not a negotiation that's just like straight up blackmail and then this scene happens which kind of took us all off guard where the boyfriend of this girl who's being controlled grabs her shoves her to the ground and rips off her earrings and it isn't just like he tries to unhook them and take them off he just rips them out of her ears and you can just see her grabbing onto them as they bleed yeah because it's revealed here that the mind control devices the orbs instead of them infusing them into her neck they were actually attaching them to her earrings here which yeah i guess 
But it was still an extremely <laughs> violent way of solving this problem, which even shocks the crowd around him when he does it. Right. The way it was filmed, particularly, this has this scene probably has the most blood of any scene in this this film right here. Yeah. He probably could have handled this in many different ways, but he does free her from the alien's control. And she does wake up immediately, not her old self again. And they're all like, okay, so can you tell us more about where the alien's base is located on Earth? I don't remember. Which, yeah, I kind of predicted was going to be the case. Usually that's how these brain control things work. Yes, because at first they debate whether or not the aliens could have a base in space. But the way that they decide to figure out it could be Earth is because... What we learn is, so, as we said, the humans are controlled by these infusions of these orbs they have on the back of their necks. The monsters they're controlling because we get this funny little scene where this, what is he? He's like a scavenger or, or, a, or an archaeologist or some guy that's like this farmer man who has like a donkey that he's putting stuff into these packs on the donkey. And he finds this rock because he seems to be uh, collecting rock samples. Yeah, almost like some sort of miner or trader type of thing. And he picks up one rock and sets it in the pack, and it makes like a ting sound. And he's like, what? What could this be? So he takes it to the sheriff, and the sheriff's like, uh, I don't know, man, but I have other things to deal with, so leave me alone. But then a bunch of kids run up into the sheriff's office and go, Sheriff, Sheriff, look up in the sky. And they all run outside to see what's going on. They think at first that it's like Rodan or something, but then they take out their binoculars and see that, oh, no, it's the astronauts and their spaceship. They're going somewhere around here. So essentially what's going on is, is that earlier when they were talking to the woman who was being controlled, she revealed, for whatever reason, I guess the aliens wanted them to know this, that their base is in Izu. It's spelled I-Z-U in Japan. Because there was this thing going on throughout the movie where they were like, why aren't the monsters attacking Japan? They're attacking everywhere else, but they haven't really stormed Tokyo yet. And then out of nowhere, the monsters start trying to hit Tokyo all at once and other areas of Japan just trying to wipe everything out. And it seems to be because their base is located in this in this area of Japan and they're trying to distract the Japanese before they get to the bottom of the situation. Right. Which I guess would be why they didn't attack Japan before, maybe. Because they do specify that Monster Land is geographically, or later to be known as Monster Island, is geographically pretty close to Tokyo. And yet they, like, send all yes. these things, like, way across the world. Like, for instance, I have, like, no idea how you have this Gorosaurus dinosaur crossing the oceans like Godzilla or something. But I guess it would make sense maybe to not have all the destruction too close to like this big base set up where they have on the off chance of uh, some destruction happening to them at least. So the rock that the farmer discovered, that the miner discovered that made that, that tinging sound, it turns out that's how the Killax are controlling the monsters. Instead of infusing any sort of device into the monsters, which, you know, you could make a goofy image in your head of them taking a giant scalpel and cutting open the back of Godzilla's neck to shove a giant orb into it. Or putting a pair of giant earrings, or, uh, yeah, earrings on Ingeris or something. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he, he might look nice with those on. But instead, they are using these rocks placed in all of, coincidentally, all the different areas that they plan to attack throughout the world in these tiny rocks as a sort of like a radio control device that sends out a signal that they can then use to remote control the monsters. 
Which makes sense that, like, they might need to actually, like, insert things inside of a human to have it be within that proximity, whereas these giant monsters' simpler brains might be able to be controlled from, you know, like, these 2,000-mile radiuses or whatever they said it was. And it would obviously be easier than trying to directly insert these devices into these monsters. Right, yeah. So they go for the what they assume is the area where the aliens base is on earth. But when the astronauts try to land their spaceship there, the Killax have placed Godzilla right on top of the area. So they're not able to land. Godzilla actually shoots some atomic breath at their ship as they try to land, but they're able to take off in time. I'm surprised he didn't destroy it. Maybe it's just, they have, it's a super futuristic spaceship with some sort of special alloy that protects it. But it flies away, so the, mil- the military goes, well, I guess we gotta fight. So they start shooting at Godzilla, and it's it's all those lovely scenes. And, and we had some stuff earlier where, as the monsters are trying to destroy all these cities, the military also tried to fight the monsters there, too. And it's always those beautiful scenes that all these movies have, where the military's incredibly ineffectual and apparently <laughs> terrible shots, where they're shooting beams and missiles and firing Gatling guns at the monsters that all happen yeah. to always be missing them, almost as if they're trying not to harm the actors in the suits. <laughs> I guess you can't take too many direct shots at them when all of your effects are real effects back then. Oh my goodness. Oh yes. But yeah, I'll say too, and uh, usually these scenes go on for long enough that you've had enough of them. I mean, usually the, the monster battles at the end don't extend past at least my attention span, but a lot of these kind of sequences do. But in this film, they are shorter and more concise and, you know, well shot. So this one actually leaves left me wanting to see more of this kind of thing rather than let's move on to the next scene. So while this is all happening and the military's fighting Godzilla, I forget who these characters are. I forget whether it's some of the scientists or some of the astronauts, but... I mean, they were all so them- memorable, Brandon. Yeah, there, there are so many of them, and they're all just so memorable. But anyway, they're, like, hiding from Godzilla as Godzilla stomps past that area. And they try to hide in, like, a cave nearby. And what they discover is, is that this is a cave that's actually controlled by the Killax because the rock walls slide behind them, almost like a, a Star Trek door. And they run deeper into the cave because f- they're already trapped anyway. And the Killax, behind some sort of impenetrable shield... Uh, speak to them basically once again you know trying to say hey will you turn over to us and to our will and they're like well no we're not going to do that and for whatever reason the killax then bring up some sort of screen and show their moon base where they're currently landing a bunch of their flying saucers and so yeah the the killax spaceships look like the typical flying saucers the ufos you expect they're now they're kind of like an orangish pinkish color but that's what they choose to use for their spaceships, which which works okay for the movie, <laughs> compared to, of course, the ships of the, the aliens and Astro Monster. So, at least now they know that there is clearly a base that the aliens have. Not only is their base on the moon, but it turns out that's actually where the main control device is that communicates to all the rocks to control the monsters. So they realize, okay, we got to go to the moon now to, to stop this whole situation from continuing. So they get in their spaceship and fly back over to the moon and they're able to follow one of the UFOs to its location. And they land their ship in the base only for 
fire to jut out of the landing area and trap not only trap their spaceship in but uh, dramatically increase the temperature but thankfully thankfully of course alex they have a cooling device inside of their futuristic spaceship to oh naturally to yes. counteract the fire but at the same time the fire is keeping them trapped in this area so they can't leave so the astronauts and th- come they, out. they do reference that that the cooling system trying to fail too i believe that's true so they only have a limited amount of time to go here i mean there's even a point where they're flying off here where they're even not really sure what they're going to to find where we're either going to be heroes or come back in body bags. Yeah. That is the exact line. So they get out of their spaceship and they get into a rover to drive it deeper into the Killax moon base. They do get in there, but and they have to like shoot in to uh, attack the base and they're able to eventually do enough damage to it with the rover and their own guns that it breaks open and it's this interesting shot because where... Because naturally their moon rovers came equipped already with, like, giant turrets above them for just such an emergency. Well, yes, of course. You never you never know what you're going to encounter. Uh, especially for destroying specific alien alloy protected glass or whatever is keeping the Killax sealed off. Because when they do destroy it, it's this interesting shot where the inside of the base is colorful and then kind of turns to a blackish whitish color. And they investigate the inside of the base and find, instead of the Killax, these, like... When you went back through that, like, did that scene make any more sense? Like, was that just them trying to show, like, a difference in lighting in there? Because I know when we watched through that, it went, like, black and white and, like, blue and orange. And, like, it kind of left us scratching our heads as far as the way that was shot. I thought the reason what it was trying to show there was it, like, decommissioning their base. Because what we learn is that the Killax are actually these slug-like creatures. Yeah, and they look pretty good. They looked pretty good, yeah. These, like, slug-like creatures that, uh, when, that can only exist in high-temperature areas. And when there's low temperatures, they revert back from a human form to their slug forms and crawl into, like, these rocks to keep themselves safe from the hot temperatures. So my assumption was that their base is usually set at a similar temperature, and with the high heat they now pumped into the base, it you know may have decommissioned some of it. Now, not all of it, because the, the device that was controlling Godzilla and the rest of the monsters is still active inside the base, because we get this scene where they try to basically disconnect the device from... It's, it's almost like a, this spinning crystal looking thing, and they're trying to disconnect it from the whatever, like the power cord it's attached to. And it's this scene, this like tense scene where they're like shooting at it with this device that I, I assume from the immense amount of heat to the point where it's even catching the cord of their device on fire, just trying to disconnect the control device. And they keep saying, oh, we, we can't if we do this anymore, it's going to, you know, it's going to die and we won't be able to get out of here. And, but eventually they're able to do it just long enough and shoot it with this, some sort of like laser beam that it disconnects the control device from the power cord and they grab it. And now with them in control of this power device, they return to earth and okay, this is a bit of like a heel turn, but they talk to the scientists that were running the underground monster control base again. And they're now back in the control base, you know, with, with their control devices taken out so the aliens no longer have her, have control over them. And they've now figured out 
how to switch over the alien's control and now control the monsters themselves. I think it's maybe because they disconnected the control device on the moon, but it, to me it always felt kind of sudden. They're like, oh, by the way, the monsters are on our side now. Like, oh, well, I'm that's not, good. I'm not sure that they were able to take control of the monsters per se, but it seemed like at this point the monsters were just generally, they knew what to do on their own as far as being on the side of humanity just by coincidence. So the monsters are steered in the direction of the Killax base in that Japanese area, and they start all marching in that direction. But of course, the Killax still have more tricks up their sleeve. They send in a monster from space, and, you know, it's, it's King Ghidorah, of course. It's King Ghidorah again. Just, yeah. <laughs> Just like always. He comes down from space again after healing from the last time Godzilla punched him. And he comes down and here it is. Here's the scene the movie was made for. Yeah, once we got to this point, I, I, you had to like take a bathroom break right before we start. And I think you got back and we said, well, there's 15 minutes left. You know, the movie's going to start happening. Which was unfortunately the case with a lot of the prior Godzilla movies we've covered, especially the yeah, weaker ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we got through everything to get to this point. Yes, if, if you listening understood anything we talked about <laughs> over the past, like, half hour, props to you, but well, hey. <laughs> hopefully they did. Wikipedia describes this film. The film received more praise, and the fans liked it for its audacious and simple story. Very simple, right? Uh, which, yeah, it does not have a simple story at all. But hey, if you made it this far, here's your reward, because we're here it's the big fight the movie was made for. All of the monsters team up, and they all take down King Adora at once, and it's a wonderful battle. There's so many memorable little scenes in here. We get a part where Anchorus comes out from behind King Adora, grips onto one of his necks, and King Adora flies up into the air with Anchorus still gripped onto one of his necks until Anchorus can't hold on anymore, and he falls and smashes into the ground, and King Adora, wanting to rub it in, lands on top of Anchorus to keep him pinned down to the ground before he goes after the other monsters. That shot is pretty well ingrained in my head of Anchorus falling, but to be fair, that's because I've seen it quite a few times in my childhood is uh, that sequence is recycled later and reused in another Godzilla film. Yes, but the advantage of Anchorus losing to King Adora is that the impact he makes in the ground when he falls actually begins to unveil the Killax base. It causes some of the mountain or hill or whatever to decay. Right. On the side of the island to, like, yeah, crumble into the sea, leaving exposed part of this dome buried within the the foundations of the dirt and mountain itself. Yes, but it's not time to deal with the Killax. They still got King Adora to deal with. And hey, if King Adora couldn't take on Godzilla, Mothra, and Rodan, he sure is not going to be able to take on Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, Anchorus, Godzilla's son. Oh yeah, that's a big contribution right there. Uh, Varan, who is, again, just flying in the background and doesn't actually contribute to the fight at all. We got Gorosaurus, we got Baragon, we got Manda, of course. We got Kamunjo from Son of Godzilla, the giant spider, walking around shooting his webs. I mean, all he really does is just shoot his webs to tie up King Adora. But really, at the end of the day, that's all he really right. needs. Right. Mothra's back in lava form, or larva form. So Mothra and the, the spider both shoot out their webs at the same time to double the impact of it. Yes. Yeah. Which, which is a nice little uh, thing of them teaming up. Because a lot of it, the fight is ultimately just King Adora 
shooting his lightning beams to try to keep everyone back. Godzilla, who of course, you know, has dealt with him before, kind of comes out behind him and tries to grab hold of his necks and take him down. Uh, eventually, they're able to push King Ghidorah into the ground and they all just like take turns stomping on him. Godzilla just keeps stomping on King Ghidorah's neck over and over again until Ghidorah literally just starts spitting out blood. <laughs> yeah, even though this thing is clearly just a puppet, they, you can really actually feel the impact of this too. Yeah, there's a really good bit where Godzilla grabs a hold of one of the necks and then just smashes it into the ground, and you really feel the impact of it. So Godzilla continues to stomp on him. At one point, just to give Godzilla's son something to do, Manila shoots out one of his little smoke rings, since he's not always the best at pulling out an atomic uh, breath. And the smoke ring actually goes around one of King Ghidorah's heads and also kills that head, too. <laughs> Just to give Manila something to do, you know. And so they are able to take out the other head as well. And they just continue stomping and tearing him apart. And they finally do it. He's not flying back into space. This time they actually kill King Hagorah. They appear to, yeah. He then stomp him into the dirt. And that, that's, that seems to be it. Oh, they not only stomp him into the dirt, Alex. But as we'll get to here, the ground caves in. And yep. And Ghidorah falls beneath the earth. So, hey, maybe they'll find a way to resurrect him one day. But that's a pretty... This whole sequence was a pretty good way to take him out. <laughs> well, uh, when they were originally working on this, I think at one point they were thinking of using this one as like a finale to the whole series. Though it ultimately wasn't. But, I mean, I could see what they were doing. I mean, that had been, you know, the biggest, like antagonist in the, the film franchise you you pull all the rest of them back in they might think that it's okay to finish him off for good here even though they don't um ultimately if you uh continue further into the franchise unless you are assuming there are different king Ghidorahs, like there you know were honestly different godzillas possibly different angruses and so forth Yes, so it's always possible, but at least in this particular movie, it was satisfying at least getting to see King Adora not fly away for once. Right. All the monsters getting to take him on at the same time. So they win, and there's like a bunch of cute little scenes of the monsters celebrating with each other. But there's still one last thing to deal with, because now with the Killax bases exposed they can start actually trying to take them down. Now, the Killax have one last trick up their sleeve, which we'll get to in a second, but Godzilla tries to use his atomic breath on the dome of their base, but it has no effect, so Godzilla just runs up and kicks through it. Aw, oh, that was beautiful. It's a wonderful shot. He just runs up and just kicks through the base, and I guess his foot is much more powerful than his own breath, because he just smashes through their shielding and takes them out, and you see the... The Killax all trying to flee, but ultimately, because of the, the natural uh, atmosphere and humidity of the Earth, they all start decaying back into their slug rock forms. Although, we do get another spaceship coming for a final thrust here soon, which is in like a fire sort of appearance right now. Because they refer to it as the, as the Fire Dragon, which is also what they were referring to King Ghidorah as earlier. So I'm not sure if the people were mistaking this last ship for King Ghidorah, or if they were mistaking King Ghidorah earlier for the, the ship. But nonetheless, <laughs> the flaming ship comes by and, like, streaks over Rodan and basically sets the poor pterodactyl on fire. 
Yes, yeah. So one last final, final trick the Killaks have up their sleeve is a is some sort of f- flaming object flying through the sky, which, yes, they refer to as the Fire Dragon. So at first, everybody thinks it's just some sort of other new monster that's appeared. And yeah, poor Rodan, he tries to take it on, and he just ends up getting caught on fire and smashing it to the ground. Because... That was his biggest contribution in the movie, too. I mean, Other yeah. than when he escorts the ship, as they put it in one scene where he's chasing a ship, a human rocket, unsuccessfully, and then they just go up and avoid him. Yeah, Rodan does his thing, which is mostly just crashing into the ground, but... Hey, you know, he's always here. He's he's a long mainstay of the Godzilla franchise, and we're we're always happy to see Rodan and what nothing he will do this time. <laughs> so the fire dragon flies around, it starts flying across the world, blasting through different buildings, and they're trying to figure out what to do about this thing. And you're thinking, oh well the monsters will do something. Well, no, this is where the humans get to do their thing. So they the astronauts get back into their futuristic spaceship, they fly behind the fire dragon, which as the fire begins to extinguish off of it, it reveals it's just one of the other UFOs piloted by the Killax. They shoot a blast at it, it smashes into the ground and explodes, and finally, finally, this is the end. Which ultimately we really didn't need after Godzilla stomped through the thing to have this last sequence, because it just left some of us kind of confused, like, why are they calling it the Fire Dragon? They just destroyed Ghidorah, what's go- oh, it's not him, okay, it's just a ship. I guess the I guess the humans needed something to do so we can still feel like team humans did something as well as the monsters. I guess, but ultimately it feels pointless when the real climax of the movie basically just happened. So they they right. fly over the monsters and we get this wonderful shot of all of them basically celebrating I mean, thankfully, they don't really humanize them as much as they have in some of the previous films here. They, like, Godzilla doesn't actually, like, That's he true. doesn't wave, and he doesn't, like, dance or anything. They just sort of stand there looking stoic as the camera flies over them. We get this cute shot of a helicopter with the scientists flying overhead as we get different shots of the monsters kind of just doing their thing, happy to be able to just get back to their regular lives. And we, we get also shots of the monsters that did nothing during the entire fight. Just sort of <laughs> hanging out. You get Monda like, burrowing through a mountain. We get a shot of Veron just kind of flying around, not doing much of anything. And But it, it's a nice little closer to have everybody together celebrating. And that's where the movie finally uh, caps off. And so, yeah, as, as you've seen through the past, gosh, like 40 minutes or so, Israel Monsters is... A lot of things. It's an important film to the entire Godzilla franchise. Honestly, one of the most important. It's also a complex film with a lot of moving parts, but a lot of those moving parts aren't terribly interesting. They're ambitious. Like, they're really trying with this human story and they're, like, this whole, like, intergalactic conspiracy and they're, and, they're, and, and and the way they try to connect it to the monster story. But ultimately, it just leaves... A, something to be desired because you're just waiting for the monster stuff to happen again because that's why you're here there's 11 monsters in this movie and you know not all of them really get to do much because there isn't screen time they give to to give them a function in the movie no it's a good setup i like the whole plot i just like in some of the other films you know i don't particularly like the plot or care at all i really thought this was a good setup it just it spends too much time on this some of the shots are too long. There's not enough distinction between a lot of the characters. It's kind of hard to 
follow and keep track of because of that. If they could have cut down on this and did a little bit more with the monsters or something to give some of them a little bit more personality and just hold up on the the conspiracy train for a little bit, I think that would have much improved. So, would I recommend Australia Monsters? Yes. I mean, if you're working your way through the Godzilla movies or if you're finding specific entries in the old series to watch, are there much better entries as overall films than Destroyal Monsters? Yes. But does Destroyal Monsters also have some of the best action in the entire franchise, at least so far? Absolutely. When you get to that climax, it's it's required viewing in terms of the action in these films. It's wonderful seeing all of these monsters work together. I just wanted more. <laughs> definitely. So that caps off Destroy All Monsters, but there's definitely much, much more to go. But it was exciting to finally get to this film because this is definitely one of the films that I was anticipating the most getting to. Right. Uh, again, it is a notable highlight there with the, the big monster bash of all and... You know, not their most original plot in that they're retreading a lot of themes they already did. And though it, this isn't the best executed when it comes to the, the alien story, it's still more well executed than, you know, the previous entry we had that pretty much did this story. At least you can say that. Oh, absolutely. Which <laughs> we went from one of the worst <laughs> so, to not one of the best, but at least a very competent retelling of that kind of story. So what do we got? Next up on the docket... As we implied earlier, we got All Monsters Attack. So what's All Monsters Attack? Well, I guess you'll have to find out because the title implies that it's going to be a sequel to Destroy All Monsters. But, uh, well, you'll, you'll have to see. That sounds a lot more ominous than I probably intended, but at least it adds an air of mystery. On that note, thank you for joining us. If you have suggestions for movies or topics or just general feedback for the podcast, you can send all that to overthinkingmoviespodcast at gmail.com. And for more episodes of Overthinking Movies, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on goldhitswkva.com, star967.com, and wchx1055.com. And that's a wrap. <laughs>